0: When we began our study through the book of Romans, January 10th, 2019, I could not have imagined all of the things that would take place from that time to this that would create challenges for us in making steady progress through this book. First, there was the decision by the elders that I should give myself to more preaching away from the church on the Lord's Day. And so that disrupted a lot of the schedule through the fall. And then there was that unfortunate medical Incident that happened in December that kind of laid me up for a couple of months, and then coming back in February, it looked like we were ready to make a, a good run through the spring until coronavirus. And we were disrupted for seven weeks before we reassembled like this this morning. You remember when the virus was just being publicized here, there was a great deal of uncertainty about it, and our political leaders, our medical experts they were saying things that were very tentative and our president and our governor called for a state of emergency and so for the first two weeks after that we didn't meet at all as a church we tried to resource our members with materials where they could worship in their homes and not anticipating that this would extend on the way that it did and so after those two weeks we began to meet out on the parking lot and uh, that was surely irregular but it was very sweet to at least be able to come together as a testimony to the unseen principalities and powers and to the watching world that there's a God in heaven who deserves to be worshipped by his people, even under very dire circumstances. Well, By God's grace, we're able to regather this morning. And so it seemed fitting to me that we should just simply take up where we left off back on March the 15th. And on that occasion, we were in Romans chapter 5. We began looking at verses 1 through 11. and actually only got through the first few words of verse 5 of Romans chapter 5. So I want to return to that passage this morning and begin in the middle of verse 5 for our text as we go back and, and try to, I want to reassemble a little bit of the main flow of thinking about these 11 verses and then dive in where we left off last time. If you're using one of the Bibles provided for you in the chair in front of you, you'll find this on page 942. And I encourage you to get a copy of God's Word in front of you because all we're going to do is just work our way through the things that the Apostle Paul wrote under the inspiration of God's Spirit. So hear the Word of the Lord as I read, beginning in verse 1 of Romans chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame The very first word of this passage in verse 1 alerts us to the fact that the Apostle Paul is about to make implications and applications to draw some conclusions from an argument that he has been previously making. And that argument that he has been making begins back in chapter 3 verse 21. Specifically, what he says from 321 all the way up to chapter five is that God justifies sinners by grace alone through faith alone, not on the basis of anything that people do, not because people are good enough for him, not because people have the ability to turn over a new leaf in and of themselves, but rather out of his sheer grace, God has done everything necessary to render sinners acceptable to himself. And having made that case, Paul begins to draw out implications and applications. What this means is that if you're going to be right with God, the only way you will ever get right with God is not by trying, not by doing, but by acknowledging what God says about you to be true acknowledging the provision that he has made for sinners in his son, the Lord Jesus, and turning from your sin and trusting him. And as you do that, then you can be sure that what Jesus has done by his completely righteous life, by his substitutionary sacrificial death on the cross to pay for sin will be credited to you. But it comes only through faith, not anything that you accomplish. The Lord Jesus had no sin in his own life. He perfectly obeyed God's commandments. He earned righteousness. And then as the only righteous man that ever lived, he willingly laid down his life on the cross in behalf of sinners. And he did all of this so that sinners like you and me might be forgiven, might be declared right in God's sight, might be justified. So Paul has been arguing that the justification that God grants to people like you and me comes by his grace alone and is received through faith alone. And then he starts writing in what we have is chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, therefore, because that is true, because of the way God justifies sinners by grace through faith, there are certain blessings that belong to justified people. And Paul begins to spell out these blessings in verses 1 through 11. And what he says, in essence, is that the justified life is a life that is rich in joyful hope. There are six blessings in these verses that Paul tags to justification. Because you're justified, these six blessings belong to you. Let me point them out to you. In verse 1, because you're justified, you have peace with God. Verse 2, because you're justified, you have a standing in grace. The second part of verse 2, you have joy in the hope of the glory of God. In verse, verses 3 through the first part of verse 5, where we spent the bulk of our time last March 15th, because you're justified, you have joy in sufferings. And then in verses 9 and 10, you have salvation from wrath. In verse 11, you have joy in God. Now, as I mentioned, we stopped last time on that fourth blessing that I enumerated that carries over to the early part of verse 5. But I mentioned on that occasion that that Paul camps out on this fourth blessing more than he does any of the other five. He starts his explanation in verse 3 where he says that not only do justified people rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, but we also he says, rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope, a hope that does not put us to shame. So Christians can rejoice in our sufferings because we know that our sufferings are the pathway to glory. Suffering produces endurance, which leads to character. That in turn produces hope. And that hope will never embarrass us. That hope will never put us to shame. It won't leave us disappointed. It is a sure hope. And the reason we know it's a sure hope. Is because of what he says in verse 5. Of God's love. That's the further explanation that Paul gives. Beginning in verse 5. All the way through verse 8. Do you see it? Look at this again in verse 5. He says, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love. Because God's love. Because God loves you. What he's saying is that your hope as a Christian, it's not a pipe dream. It's not a fantasy. It's not pie in the sky. No, it's certain. It's sure. Well, how do we know? Because God loves you. God's love is the guarantee that the hope that we have in Jesus Christ is a sure and certain hope. This is the reason we can rejoice in sufferings and do so with real hope. I want us to look at what verses 5 through 8 teach us about God's love for us. And then next time, Lord willing, we will come back and look at verses 9, 10, and 11 to see those final two of these six blessings that I've called attention to from this passage. Verses five through eight point out to us two ways that God's love is made known to those who are justified. The first way is by the Spirit pouring out that love in our hearts. And the second way is by the Son proving that love on the cross. Or another way to say it is like this, that God's love comes to us, one, first, subjectively and personally through the ministry of God's Spirit. And God's love comes to us, secondly, objectively, historically, through the ministry of the Son, specifically, His death on the cross. So let's look at these two ways that God's love comes to God's people. First, God's love is poured out in our hearts by His Spirit. God loves his children. This is the great theme of Old and New Testaments. We read about God loving in a variety of ways. We read about his love being manifested in a variety of ways. But love is not just an attribute of God. Love is the very nature of God. The Apostle John tells us twice that God is love in 1 John chapter 4. And scripture speaks about the way the God of love loves. And he does so, as I said, in a variety of ways. We see him loving within himself. There is this intra-Trinitarian love between Father, Son, and Spirit. And we get glimpses of this by the way that God spoke at Jesus' baptism when the Heavenly dove came down. He said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. We see it all. Jesus says in John chapter 14, verse 31, that he is committed to doing the will of his father so that the world might know that he loves the father. So the first kind of love the Bible teaches us is God's love within himself. Secondly, we. See, the love that God has for all creation. He created the world. He's for this world. How can we see God's love for all creation? We see it in His providential goodness. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. He cares for the beasts in the fields. He watches over little sparrows. Not one of them falls to the earth apart from the will of our Father in heaven. And so He has a love for all creation. In addition to this, Scripture teaches God has a general love for fallen sinners in this world. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. That shows us the depth of God's love for a fallen world, for fallen humanity. But then the fourth way that the Scripture speaks of God's love is His peculiar Saving love for his own people, for his elect. Ephesians chapter one, verses four and five teach this. Paul writes there in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. God chose us in love. It was in love. That he determined before the foundation of the world that we should be adopted into his very family. Well, this is the kind of love. The saving, peculiar love that God has for his own people. That's the kind of love that Paul has in mind here in our text. This saving love of God is given freely and sovereignly. It's not influenced by anything outside of God himself. And it's certainly not influenced by anything in us. So, brothers and sisters, we should never think that God loves us because of something in us. But we should recognize what he said to the Old Testament Israelites applies to us as well. Before they entered into the land of promise, Moses gathered them together. And in one of his sermons to them, he says in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 7, these words. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. You see this? Us, we might think this is a syllogism, this is circular reason. But it makes perfect sense when we recognize the freeness and sovereignty of God's love. He says, I don't love you because of you, I love you because I love you. The reason is in God, it's free. Sovereign display of love. Romans chapter 9 also illustrates this when Paul says of God, talking about his discriminating grace in election. God says, Jacob I've loved, Esau I've hated. And then he goes on in that chapter and he says that God has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. It's free. Can't be earned, can't be manipulated, can't be deserved. God gives it. This freely given love is also eternal. So God says to the people of Israel through the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. No beginning in God's love for you. If you know God through faith in Jesus Christ, just stop and think on this. There was never a time in God when He didn't love you. And there'll never be a time in the future when He stops loving you. His love's eternal, it's also immutable, it never changes. In John 13 1, this is the Apostles' commentary on Jesus' relationship to His disciples. He says, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. God is love. And he genuinely loves people. He particularly loves his own children who have been justified through faith, sovereignly, eternally, immutably loved by him. But sometimes Christians struggle To really believe that God loves them. Sometimes doubts and fears and reality of sin that remains in their lives. Cause them to think. I don't know how God could love me. Have you ever entertained those kind of doubts? Those kinds of fears? Do you remember that children's game? We played growing up. You get a daisy and you start picking the petals off the daisy. He loves me. He loves me not. I fear sometimes that's the way that we think about God's love. But that's completely wrong. That's not how God wants us to regard his love. He intends for us to know his love in all of these dimensions. He intends for us to experience his love, to feel his love. Well, how does that happen? How do you come to experience God's love? Verse 5 goes on to tell us when it says God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. God's Spirit makes us to experience God's love. His Spirit's been given to us. When? At the point of your new birth. When you first came to trust Jesus Christ, it was because of the Spirit's ministry in your life. And when He changed your heart and mind, when He opened up your understanding to see and believe Jesus, He took up residence within you. He came, as Paul puts it in 2 Timothy chapter 1, to dwell within you. He causes us to know that God is our Father. And He enables us to experience, to know, to believe what it means to be a child of God. This is what Paul gets at in Galatians 4, six. He says, because your son's God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. We can call upon the Creator of the universe as our Father, knowing He loves us. He's adopted us into His very family. Later in Romans, in chapter 8, verse 16, Paul says, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The Spirit of God Causes God's love to be poured into our hearts. It's a very interesting phrase. It means to be lavishly poured out. Poured out in such a way that there is an overflow. In other words, the spirit suffuses our affections with God's love. So that we sense it. We know it. We feel it and we can be overcome by the realization of it. This is precisely what the the Apostle Paul gets at in in Ephesians chapter 3 when he talks about how he prays for the church at Ephesus. Listen to what he says. This is a prayer that we ought to learn to pray for ourselves and for others. He says he prays that according to the riches of God's glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So that. Strengthened with power Through the spirit in your inner being. For this purpose. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you being rooted and grounded in love. You. You may have strength to comprehend with all the saints. What is the breadth and length and height and depth. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. How does the spirit do this? How do we come to experience what Paul's talking about here? Before he was crucified, Jesus gathered with his disciples in the upper room. And he told them that he was not going to leave them as orphans. But rather, together with the Father, he was going to send the spirit to them. And the spirit would live within them. And the spirit would have a ministry among them that would be fulfilled in what Paul is talking about. In our text. In John chapter 16 verses 13 and 14. Jesus said when the spirit of truth comes. He will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority. But whatever he hears he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. And he will glorify me. For he will take what is mine. And declare it to you. The spirit will show us Christ. The Spirit will manifest Christ to us. The Spirit will pour God's love for us in Christ. To overflow in our hearts and minds. He'll convince us that we're loved by God. In such a deep way. At such a great cost. That we will know it. We'll experience it. We'll be transformed by it. When you are assured that God loves you. That he is for you. That he is your father. You are his child. It gives you courage. It delivers you from the fear of people. And circumstances. And uncertainties. It gives you joy in the pursuit of doing his will. Because you know you're not left to your own resources. You're not trying to do this in your own strength. but You're doing this with the love of God. Being poured out in your hearts by the Holy Spirit. As you come more and more to delight in that love. You'll grow in your faith. You'll grow in your love for Him. You'll grow in your confidence of His promises that He's made to you. And you'll be able more and more to rejoice in sufferings. Well, God's love is poured into our hearts by His Spirit. That's the first way that God's love's made known to us as Paul teaches us here. The second way is through the work of Jesus Christ. Specifically, God's love is proven at the cross by his son. This is verses 6, 7, and 8. You see verse 6, it starts with 4. 4, Paul is tying what he's about to say to what he has just said. The basis on which the spirit convinces us that we're loved by God is the cross of Christ. Look at verse 6, he says, Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 8, Christ died for us. Paul wants us to recognize that the Spirit works in us on the basis of what the Son has done for us. Consider who it is that Paul's talking about when he says Christ died. It's the God-man. It's the Son of God's love. The only begotten. The only righteous man who has ever lived. This is the only man who never deserved to die. This realization so overwhelmed the Apostle John that he writes about it like this in First John chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. In this, the love of God was manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. And sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Brothers and sisters, we should never get over this staggering truth. That God has loved us. And he gave up the son of his love. To come into the world and to take our place. And to endure endure his wrath against our sins. To be a propitiation. A full payment. Full satisfaction of our debt. By his death on the cross. What wondrous love is this, O my soul? What wondrous love is this that caused the Lord of bliss to bear the dreadful curse for my soul? We should consider often and deeply who it is that has died for us, but then we should also consider the kind of people for whom Christ died. You see how Paul describes this in this passage? Just look at those words. Weak. Ungodly. Sinners. What does he mean by weak? It's a word that also means sickly. Without strength. Without any ability to do anything for yourself that you need to have done. You're helpless. You're hopeless. You're lost. You're condemned. It's the picture of being on death row with all of your appeals used up. Nothing that you can do for yourself. Ungodly. What is this? It's opposed to God. This is the same word. The same root word. That Paul uses in chapter 1 verse 18. When he begins to teach us the doctrine of sin. And he says that it is the wrath of God. That's being revealed from heaven. Against all ungodliness. To be ungodly is to deserve God's wrath. And yet. It's for ungodly people that Christ died. This is stunning. Paul wants us to see how outrageous the love of God is by reminding us that people will scarcely die for a righteous person, a person who hasn't done a crime. He says, though, perhaps for a good person, somebody who's morally superior, a friend or someone might lay down his life to die. But Jesus, he died for helpless, ungodly sinners. Did you hear about Shelley Luther last week, that Dallas salon owner? Who opened up her salon so that those who worked with her and for her might earn a living to feed their families? And she was arrested and went before a judge who fined her several thousand dollars and sentenced her to seven days in jail. Dan Patrick, the Texas lieutenant governor, paid her fine. And he offered to go and fulfill her jail sentence. I read about that and I said, that makes sense. This is a righteous thing. This woman didn't really do anything wrong. She was trying to do a good thing. And here is this lieutenant governor who's willing to, in some sense, lay down his life to sacrifice for someone who's righteous. But can you imagine if Dan Patrick had made that same deal for Dylan Roof? The man who five years ago went into the church in Charleston, Carolina, the Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church, and murdered nine people? Can you imagine someone saying I'll take his place I'll be willing to be executed in his behalf That's outrageous That's scandalous Brothers and sisters this is the kind of scandalous love with which God loves us We don't deserve it We deserve the opposite left to our sin if God treated us the way that we deserved we would have nothing but the prospect of everlasting damnation because we've rebelled against our good and holy and righteous God. Yet God loves us. And He gave up the Son of His love in order to save us. So we can say with the Apostle Paul in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh... I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Who loved me. He gave himself for me. Friend, can you say that? Children. Young people, can you say that? Do you know the love of God? That he has for sinners in Jesus Christ. Can you say. He died for me. He's my Lord. He's my Savior. God will enable you to confess that honestly. If you'll honestly admit the truth about yourself. That left to yourself. You're ungodly. You're without strength. You're a sinner. And if you got what was coming to you, you would experience God's wrath forever. And if you will say what God says about you and turn away from your life of rebellion against this good, gracious God and bow to Him and receive the Lord Jesus that He sent into the world to save sinners, then God will save you. He will accept you. And you will be able to say, He loved me. He gave His Son for me. A justified people can have joy in sufferings by knowing and being sure that God loves them. We know our hope will never be put to shame because God has loved us with a sovereign and immutable and eternal love. And that love is being poured out in our hearts by the ministry of His Spirit who lives within us right now. And the Spirit does this By taking us back to the cross where God's own son loved us to the point of death. Sacrificing himself for us. Brothers and sisters, never forget. Never lose sight of. Fight to never doubt God's love for you. Let the words from Romans 8 that the Apostle Paul pens about the deep love of God That he has for his children. Let these words seal to our hearts this morning. The truth from our text. Paul writes. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress. Or persecution. Or famine. Or nakedness. Or danger. Or sword. No. In all these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You are loved. You are loved. So take hope. Rejoice in sufferings, Because your God is for you. He is with you and he loves you. Let's pray together. Our father, we thank you for your great love for us. We thank you that you've not left us to ourselves, but you have come to us through the ministry of your word and spirit and revealed Jesus Christ to us. We thank you that in Christ, we find all that we need for this life and the life to come. And I pray father, that you would today seal to our hearts this overwhelming reality, this truth of your love, cause your spirit to do what Paul says he does, to pour out your love into our hearts and minds. For those here today that are strangers to your love, they've never experienced your love, would you not call them? Would you not open their eyes? Would you not make this the day of their salvation by showing them Christ? Drawing them to Christ. Granting them faith and repentance. That they too might be found complete in him. As testimonies of your great love. We pray in Jesus name. Amen.